Good evening. Pence Food, a new national holiday, honors freed slaves, the Iraq War Authorization, and immigrants' rally in New York. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, June 18th, 2021. Former Vice President Mike Pence delivered keynote remarks at the 2021 Faith and Freedom Conference in Kissimmee, Florida. At the beginning of his remarks, he is heckled with calls of traitor. Later, he got cheers when he mentioned former President Donald Trump. Well, hello, America. It is great to be back with so many patriots dedicated to faith and freedom and the road to the majority. And I want to thank my friend Ralph Reed for those overly generous words. I'm deeply humbled by them. Ralph Reed knows me well enough to know the introduction I prefer is a little bit shorter. I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order, and I am honored to stand before you today. Pence is hated by Trump's most ardent supporters since the January 6th Capitol invasion. He presided over the Senate as a certified Joe Biden's election victory. Under the Constitution, ben Pence was obligated, but Trump and his followers regarded as an act of betrayal. The hecklers were wearing Make America Great hats and were escorted out of the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center by security. On January 6th, Trump told his supporters Pence had the power to overturn the 2020 election, which he falsely said had been stolen from him. He made the statement at a Stop the Steal rally moments before hundreds of his supporters, armed and angry, crashed the Capitol, some chanting, hang Mike Pence. I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. All he has to do... All in, this is, states want to revote. The states got defrauded. They were given false information. They voted on it. Now they want to recertify. They want it back. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president, and you are the happiest people. Later, Pence, that was whisked out of the Senate chamber by security, was not harmed in the riot. The damage to his political career is another question. And Peru's right-wing presidential hopeful Keiko Fujimori, who appears to have lost an unconfirmed count of votes cast in a crucial runoff on June 6th, repeated fraud allegations yesterday as a review of disputed ballots held up the final result. At a press conference during which she took no questions and offered no proof of her claims, the Fuerza Popular, or Popular Force leader, claimed that supporters of her leftist rival Pedro Castillo had altered ballots after the fact and cast extra votes using fake signatures. Based on the unconfirmed count, Castillo has taken 50.12 percent of the vote, a lead of some 44,000 votes in the June 6th runoff after emerging a surprise victor of the first election round in April. Meanwhile, prosecutors have said they would seek a 30-year jail sentence term for Fujimori on charges of taking money from scandal-tainted Brazilian construction giant Odebrecht to fund failed presidential bids in 2011 and 2016. Fujimori, who has already spent 16 months in pretrial detention, denies the allegations.
And across the world, voting in Iran's presidential election has ended. Voting had been extended for two hours to allow latecomers to cast ballots, according to Iranian press reports. Nearly 60 million eligible Voters cast their ballots in the presidential election, with the conservative head of the judiciary, Ibrahim Raisi, widely seen as the frontrunner. With uncertainty surrounding Iran's efforts to revive the 2015 nuclear deal and growing poverty at home after years of United States sanctions, the turnout for the vote is being seen by Iranian analysts as a referendum on the current leadership's handling of an array of crises. Iranian opposition groups abroad and some dissidents at home have urged a boycott of the vote they see as an engineered victory for Raisi. Ultimate political power in Iran since its 1979 revolution toppled the U.S.-backed monarchy, rests with the supreme leader. But the president, as the top official of the state bureaucracy, also wields significant influence in fields from industrial policy to foreign affairs. And we'll have more on America's forever war in the Middle East later in this broadcast. The United States has a new national holiday after President Joe Biden yesterday signed the Juneteenth Independence Day Act, making June 19th a national holiday. It's the day slaves in Texas were informed by a union general they were free. Two years after Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation had already freed every slave in the Confederacy. WBAI's Angela Palumbo reports about the new day. Joe Biden, who signed the Juneteenth bill into law this week, says the bill marks a long, hard night of slavery, subjugation, and a promise of a brighter morning to come. This is a day of profound, in my view, profound weight and profound power. A day in which we remember the moral stain, the terrible toll that slavery took on the country and continues to take. What I've long called America's original sin. Biden signed the bill one day after the United States Senate voted unanimously. That's Republicans along with Democrats voted unanimously to declare Juneteenth a federal holiday. This was followed by a House vote 415 to 14 to make Juneteenth the 12th federal holiday in our nation's history. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says this law is an important step forward for racial equality in our country. And as communities celebrate Juneteenth this weekend, it is a clarion call for us to continue the fight for true justice for black and brown Americans. The disparate treatment and mistreatment of black and brown Americans still permeates our society. It infects our courts, our schools, our hospitals, and our places of work. It reflects the unfulfilled promise of a nation built upon the notion that all are created equal. And it has its roots in our nation's original sin, slavery, a crime against humanity that we have for far too long failed to fully acknowledge, address, and come to grips with. Senate Majority Leader New York's Chuck Schumer worked alongside Senator Markey on this bill. He says Juneteenth will be a day of reflection on what still needs to be done for the black community. He beams as he speaks about how the Senate worked together to pass this bill. Now, yesterday, the Senate came together and we passed unanimously, unanimously the law, the, the bill that says Juneteenth is a federal holiday. It was an important moment for recognizing our history, not shrinking from it, not sweeping it under the rug, not denying it but staring it directly in the face. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee says this momentous bill has caused her to hear the bells of freedom. What I see here today is racial divide crumbling, being crushed this day under a momentous vote uh, that brings together people who understand the value of freedom. 
And that is what Juneteenth is all about. It is a journey of pain, brutality, separation, and the racist hand of people held in bondage. But yet, 47 states have taken up a commemoration and celebration because there's something about freedom that is contagious. And that is what this holiday will bring about. But passing the Juneteenth bill is just the first step in recognizing the brutal past of slavery in this country. Representative Jackson Lee is the sponsor of reparations legislation. If passed, this reparations measure would create a commission responsible for studying the history of slavery and discrimination in this country. It would then recommend ways to compensate living descendants of slaves. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker is one of many politicians pushing for this reparations bill, also known as H.R. 40, to be passed. And so we as a nation have not yet truly acknowledged and grappled with racism and white supremacy that has tainted this country's founding and continues to persist in those deep racial disparities and inequalities today. The White House has expressed support for studying the issues of reparations. Representative Jackson Lee remains confident this bill will soon be brought to the House for a vote. Angela Palumbo, WBAI, New York. And happy birthday, Angela. And yesterday's announcement had its own historic twist. The president's remarks were introduced by Vice President Kamala Harris, the first black woman and the first the first woman and the first black vice president in American history. Throughout history, Juneteenth has been known by many names. Jubilee Day, Freedom Day, Liberation Day, <clears throat> Emancipation Day, and today, a national holiday. <laughs> Looking out across this room, national holidays are something important. These are days when we as a nation have decided to stop and take stock. Let us be clear about what happened on June 19th, 1865, the day we call Juneteenth. Because you see, that day was not the end of slavery in America. Two and a half years earlier, the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery in the Confederacy. So think about that. For more than two years, the enslaved people of Texas were kept in servitude. For more than two years, they were intentionally kept from their freedom. For more than two years. And then on that summer day, 156 years ago, the enslaved people of Texas learned the news. They learned that they were free, and they claimed their freedom. It was indeed an important day. And still, let us also remember, that day was not the end of slavery in America. The truth is, it would be six more months before the 13th Amendment was ratified before enslaved people in the South and the North were free. 
and that is Vice President Kamala Harris. In related news, lawmakers are reviving calls to end a loophole in the Constitution that allows another form of slavery, forced labor for those convicted of some crimes, to thrive. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley and Georgia Representative Nakima Williams reintroduced legislation yesterday to revise the 13th Amendment, which bans enslavement or involuntary servitude except as a form of criminal punishment. That exception, which has been recognized since 1865, has led to the common practice of forced prison labor. The amendment's loophole for criminal punishment encouraged former Confederate states after the Civil War to devise ways to maintain the dynamics of slavery. They used restrictive measures known as the Black Codes, laws targeting black people for benign interactions from talking too loudly to not yielding on the sidewalk. Those targeted would end up in custody for those minor actions and would effectively be enslaved again. The so-called Abolition Amendment was introduced as a joint resolution in December, mostly supported by Democrats in both the House and Senate. It failed to gain traction before the session's end. This time around, the hope is, Merkley said, to ignite a national movement. And the House of Representatives repealed the Iraq War Authorization and Use of Military Force, or AUMF, yesterday by a vote of 268 to 161, with 49 Republicans voting for the measure and one Democrat voting against it. Lawmakers have been trying for almost a decade to real repeal both the 2002 authorization for the use of military force as well as the 2001 AUMF that the Congress passed to greenlight hostilities against the perpetrators of the September 11, 2001 attacks. Both the Obama and Trump administration opposed the repeal measures. Representative Gregory Meeks of New York. I rise in strong support. 19 years ago, as a junior member of Congress, I faced one of the most consequential decisions of my career as an elected official with the United States Congress. The drumbeats of war were reverberating throughout Capitol Hill as the Bush administration prepared to invade Iraq. After carefully considering all of the evidence before us, including unanswered questions about post-Saddam Iraq, I cast my vote against authorizing military force against the Hussein regime. But our vote this morning to repeal the 2002 AUMF is not about relitigating our past. Rather, repealing this outdated authorization is about planning strategically for our future. It is about Congress reclaiming its constitutional obligation to weigh in on matters of war and peace. On substance, the case for repealing the 2002 AUMF is unassailable. The 2002 AUMF would have no effect on any ongoing military operations in Iraq. The United States is not relying on the 2002 AUMF as the sole authority for any military operations. It has been used as an additional legal justification for strikes by presidents of both parties, but not as the sole authority for any strikes over the last decade. The Biden administration and an unprecedented move has announced support for the legislation we are moving today. Repeal is crucial because the executive branch has a history of stretching the 2002 AUMF's legal authority. It has already been used as justification for military actions against entities that had nothing to do with Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist dictatorship, simply because such entities were operating in Iraq. Given all of the countries active near Iraq today, including Turkey and Russia, the 2002 AUMF 
is vulnerable to being abused. The 2002 authorization is generally viewed as the simplest of the AUMF's phase out. The Iraq war was formally ended years ago, and the military has not cited the permissions granted in 2002 as its sole justification for any operations in more than a decade. Still, many lawmakers, most of them Republicans, have rejected the idea of winding down the existing AUMF's without having replacements prepared to address what they call the modern-day threat. Texas GOP member Michael McCall. War should not be on autopilot. <clears throat> I do think this is an outdated uh, AUMF. Uh, and I do believe that Congress needs to reclaim its war powers under Article I of the Constitution. I also share the desire to repeal the 2002 AUMF as well as the 2001 AUMF. But that must be a part of a serious process to provide clear, updated authorities against the terrorist. And that is GOP member Michael McCall, retired Marine Major Danny Shurgeon, was deployed to Iraq. He's director of the Eisenhower Media Network. He says the AUMF, it was dangerous, and there's more of these dangerous laws like landmines still out there. An almost 19-year-old piece of legislation that instead of declaring war, which is what Congress is supposed to do before American soldiers go kill and die, we've gotten away from that since World War II. And the president has taken almost all of the authority for that. But if it's a larger war, like post 9-11 in Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, they come up with these AUMFs, authorization for the use of military force. So in October of 2002, in the lead up to the Iraq invasion, the Bush administration pushed for an authorization, basically a sanction from Congress to go to war. It's not quite the same as a declaration of war. Uh, but the problem is, not only was that war fought on false pretenses, all the reasons they gave, WMD, all that didn't pan out. The law just stayed on the books. What the authorization said is basically it gives the president the authority to remove Saddam Hussein if he doesn't give up his WMD that he didn't have. But since then, it has been used to get soldiers into Syria to continue to fight this sort of proxy war with Iran. It's an open-ended authorization. Senator Tim Kaine, who's sponsoring the Senate version, and it looks like it might actually pass this time, usually dies in the Senate, he said that he can't remember the last time that Congress repealed the War Act. And he said the problem is that we pass these AUMFs and then they float around out there like zombies that can be used for mischief. And that's a quote. And that's exactly what happened. And so it's really, I think it's important that we try to repeal this. People who were opposing it were speaking out. Mostly Republicans were saying, look at what we did with Soleimani. We couldn't have done this without the AUMF. That AUMF was used to ostensibly justify the assassination of maybe the third most powerful figure in the Iranian government while he was in Baghdad. And they also killed the leader of the Iraqi Popular Militia Forces, the PMF, that helped us fight ISIS. And all of this was done under the supposed auspices of this AUMF. The 1991 AUMF to push Saddam out of Kuwait, that's still on the books. And Tim Kaine and some of the Senate leadership are saying, we got to get rid of that one, too. And I bet you less than 1% of Americans know that technically that's still a law. It can be used for mischief. It's really been expanded, and it's a problematic endeavor. we got to stop doing AUMFs. We've got to start declaring war, debating it in public. But a first step is to get this one off the books. How is that different from Article 2? So Article 2 makes the president the commander-in-chief. 
says that he has the authority to basically be the leader of the U.S. military. Uh, Article 1, which handles, and there's a reason it's one, right? There's a reason it's the first one, handles the powers of Congress. Congress is supposed to declare war and then fund that war, right? Fund the military. So they got the power of the purse and the power of decision. Since World War II particularly, their lawyers in the Justice Department twist that Article II, which all it says is you're the commander-in-chief of the U.S. military. You direct the U.S. troops once they're in war. They've taken that and said, no, that actually gives him the authority to make war as commander-in-chief because he has to watch out for our security, so he's got to respond quickly. We can't wait for Congress to debate on it. And that's the justification. It's been used in a whole lot of problematic ways. The number of American soldiers that have died because of that reading of the Constitution, which is a flawed reading, is really almost countless. They actually went to the Congress and they got the Gulf of Tonkin resolution passed. It wasn't that hard to get it passed. What happened in America that... The president of the United States couldn't just get whatever he wanted passed pretty much in a late night session, you know, calling everybody in to do it and just do it. For the most part, presidents have been able to do that. I believe there were only 22 dissenting votes in Congress to this authorization in October of 2002. But it does appear, I don't want to be too optimistic, but, you know, it does appear that there's a bit of a sea change happening in the Congress among elements in the Democratic Party in particular and some on the libertarian right where they're starting to question this very concept. There's some improvement that's coming in, and I think that on the heels of ending the Afghanistan war, which is supposedly happening pretty soon, there's some energy to really question the war-making powers and hopefully rebalance back to Congress doing its constitutional duty. Retired Marine Major Danny Surgeon was deployed to Iraq. He's director of the Eisenhower Media Network. And closer to home, parents of immigrant children are calling out the Department of Education for lack of support throughout the pandemic. They cite inadequate communication and access to technology and some major problems with their children's education this past year. Clark Adamitis filed this report. Last year, nearly one in four of English language learning students dropped out of school in New York City. Immigrant students and parents faced many hardships throughout the pandemic. Many parents could not afford to stay home with their children as they learned virtually. Families who do not speak English had difficulty communicating with schools to understand major policy changes, COVID regulations, and virtual learning. Rita Rodriguez-Enberg, Director of Advocates for Children of New York, spoke out at a rally this week outside of City Hall. Nobody was paying attention to the needs of our families, and today we are here to make sure that our voices are heard and that all the money that's coming from the federal government that's being earmarked for education goes to our students because we have had enough. The funding that immigrant parents are demanding is from the American Rescue Plan a stimulus package signed by President Joe Biden in March. Almost $5 billion were allocated for New York schools, and marginalized students want an investment for them. Andrea Ortiz is a manager at the New York Immigration Coalition. We know that there's billions of dollars coming into the city through the American Rescue Plan, and, and um, that money is supposed to be 
allocated to, to have academic recovery for the city and for the city's most marginalized students. And so we believe that with you know, close to $5 billion, we can get uh, a significant investment in our city's uh, immigrant students and families. Um, we have created a $350 million budget over three years, which asked the city to invest in an academic recovery plan that also includes post-secondary readiness and supports for some of our most marginalized students. Maria is an immigrant mom who says online education is much harder for her son. My children have not been learning the same during the pandemic and online learning. It has just not been the same. They're not at the level that they need to be. They gave one of my sons an online assessment and they saw that he was a very low standard. He did not meet the qualifications and it was a very quick change. The city's fiscal year 22 budget includes no additional investments to improve English language learner services or immigrant family communication. The Immigrant Coalition hopes this movement will spark the city government and the Department of Education to provide the $315 million. Clark Adamitis, WBAI News, New York.